This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tonight, straight from the source, a Trump victory in Michigan, a demand for a recusal in Maine, and a looming appeal in Colorado. The fight to keep or kick the former president off the ballot across the country. Plus, 19 days out from the first votes of 2024, new ads and new strategies from Trump's Republican rivals. The question is, will it make a difference? Also, a new frontier of one of America's biggest media companies now going to battle with artificial intelligence and what it means. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, two state Supreme Courts with two very different outcomes over whether or not Donald Trump is disqualified from seeking the presidency for a third time under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. In Michigan, justices there rejecting an effort to boot Trump from the primary ballot on procedural grounds, though appearing to leave the door open for renewing these efforts playing out in many states in the general election. Meanwhile, the Republican Party in Colorado has just asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn that state's Supreme Court's unprecedented decision to kick Trump off the primary ballot, with the ruling arguing that he not only incited an insurrection, but participated in it. Trump responding to what happened in Michigan and what could happen soon in Colorado earlier today. It's very bad for Colorado, very, very bad for Colorado, but we just had the big win in Michigan today, and that was a good one. And we have 31, we have 33 wins, and uh, this isn't a loss because we'll have to see what happens. This is not a final determination, as you know. Not totally clear which 33 wins he's referencing there, but what we do know is that these efforts to disqualify Trump from the ballot have been rejected so far in at least four states. Tonight, decisions are still pending in Oregon and in Maine. Whatever these states decide, it does appear increasingly clear that all of this could ultimately be up to the nation's highest court to settle this matter. Here tonight, CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Also with us, conservative lawyer and contributor for The Atlantic, George Conway. Ellie, let me start with you because this Michigan ruling is obviously a win for Trump. But can you just kind of walk us through how the Michigan Supreme Court comes to this decision when we saw a very different decision, still a 4-3 one from the Colorado Supreme Court just last week. Okay, so first of all, this is chaos, right? I mean, we see different states seemingly every few days coming to different resolutions based on different criteria. But if I had to sort of unify what happened here, how do we get one resolution in Michigan, the other in Colorado? The answer is that in Colorado, there is this pre-existing legal procedure that you can use to challenge someone's qualifications for the ballot. So they had this mini hearing, took five days back in October, November, and the Colorado Supreme Court said, good enough. In Michigan, there is no comparable proceeding. So the Michigan Supreme Court today essentially said, we don't have a way to do this in this state. My general criticism complaint about this 14th Amendment effort is, I don't believe it's up to the states at all. I think the 14th Amendment is clear on its face that it's up to Congress to tell us how this works, and they've not delegated that to the so state. So for you, there's no gray area. No, I, th- I think there. this is no go. I think the only way to do it 
is based on what Congress has done. The amendment itself, Section 5, says Congress is to tell us how this works. The only thing Congress has done is they passed a criminal law many years ago saying it's a crime to commit insurrection if you do, you're disqualified. That's not great. If people have a complaint with that, complain to Congress because they've failed to act. So I'm glad you said that because, George Conway, you were initially skeptical of this entire premise of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment barring someone, former president, Donald Trump, from ever serving again, from qualifying to run for president again. But you have changed your mind on that following the ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court. Why? Yeah, I I approach this whole issue with trepidation because it is a big deal to throw a former president off the ballot. And I, but I was convinced very much by the original Law Review article written by the conservative law professors. I said, wow, this is a much stronger argument than I thought. But I still felt that courts were going to try to look for a way out and that somehow, you know, some genius legal, uh, anal- legal uh, lawyer or, or law professor would come out with a response. And when I saw the Colorado case, I didn't see one. I didn't see a federal argument against what the Colorado Supreme Court did. And all the arguments that I have seen against disqualification are bogus, like the one with, you know, my friend Ellie just mentioned. He suggests that the only way that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could be enforced was is through an act of Congress. That's just not true. There's nothing in Section 3 that says that. There's nothing that says that in the other provisions of the, of the 14th Amendment. And if it were true, that would mean that if Congress repealed tomorrow all of the Civil Rights Acts that were enacted from the time of the Civil War through the 60s to the present, that would mean under Section 1, that Section 1, which prohibits race discrimination, that would mean that the states could immediately start resegregating their schools and there would be no way to enforce it. That it's just not the law. And there's nothing in the 14th Amendment that says that Section 3 is any different than Section 1 on the, in that score. So that argument just goes out the door. All the other arguments that I've seen that have been raised, like the uh, argument that the, the president is not an officer, is just, you know, that one is silly because the, pre- the, the Constitution refers to the president as, uh, presidency as an office dozens of times. So, I mean, really, the arguments are pathetically weak. And unless somebody comes up with something better, the, the Supreme Court's going to have a very difficult time avoiding the consequence of the plain language of the 14th Amendment. Kelly? So, I, I agree with original George here, uh, where he started off. There is me- language on this specifically in the 14th Amendment. Everyone's talking about Section 3, which is very important. It says if, a, if an officer engages in insurrection or gives comfort to uh, enemies of the country, he's disqualified. Great. But Section 5 is two sections ahead that says Congress shall have the power to pass legislation to enact this amendment. So has Congress done that? No, it doesn't say Congress shall have the power or states can if they feel like it. That's nonsense. Ellie, that's just complete nonsense. It's the language of Section 5. I think we have Section 5. We'll call it up. What's your response to that? Section 5 is clear. It says Congress has the the, power. What you just said, what you – it does have the power, but it does not say – what it does not say is that the amendment is not self-executing. And as that's the point that I was making with Section 1, Ellie. That what it means is that if Section 3 says somebody who's engaged in an insurrection is, is not eligible if they've already taken an oath, then that's what it means. It doesn't, you don't need Congress to tell you to follow the Constitution, no more than you need Congress to tell you to follow the, the Section 1's prohibition in the 14th Amendment that says that you can't put black kids in a different school. I'm not following it's that analogy that whatsoever. This, I, I don't this know this what you're talking about. Congress shall have the power. This self-executing point. Congress says it. Yeah, that second. provision, Ellie, 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 you know better. 
You've read the provision. That provision applies to Section 1 as well. Your logic would mean that courts could, that, that, that states could engage in race discrimination tomorrow if all the civil rights statutes were gone. It's no, just nonsense, Ellie. Not at all. You know That's that. not what it means. It says Congress shall have the power. You're trying it, to add nonsense, states. It's nonsense, It's not an You're argument. It's not a serious argument, Let me make a point about this. It's not a serious argument. I mean, you, you, you're speaking in conclusory terms. You're not addressing the actual issue. Let me, no, let me make this speaking. point about the, the self-executing point. Elliot, Elliot, I made it. I mean, Ellie, I made a com I made a complete argument that Section one, 3 is parallel to Section 1. That's what we do as lawyers. We don't say that a provision that's like Section 5 that says that Congress has the power, that does not mean that, the, that a provision of the Constitution is not enforceable unless Congress says so. That's nonsense. Okay. If, the, if the framers of the 14th Amendment had, set, had agreed to say, had meant to say that, they could have said that in words of one syllable. Instead, they said in Section 3 that somebody who, 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 engage, who, who, who um, engages in an oath to the Constitution, to, to support the Constitution, then engages in insurrection, which isn't really a hard requirement for somebody to meet, <laughs> not engaging in insurrection, they're, they're barred. And it says that without regard. It doesn't say unless Congress does something in Section 5. It doesn't say that. And we, you know, I mean, I'm a conservative. I was a member of the Federal Society. This is how we read plain text. We don't make stuff up just because we don't like the result. This is not textualism. This is pretzel logic. I agree with you. Let's take it as a given that Donald no, no, Trump... No, no, no. George, <laughs> no, let, not, you have to let me talk at some point. Illogical. George, come on. You're filibustering. Okay. Let's let, let's let, let, Ellie, let's, let's let Ellie make his point, and then I've got a question for okay. you, George. Let's take it as a given that Donald Trump yes. engaged in insurrection. The amendment itself is clear. You want to talk text? Section 5 is clear as can be. Congress has the power. What you're trying to do is read into it and so do the states. Let me Elliot, also make this. You're George, reading, you're misreading Section Five. The George, text says Congress has we'll a power. We'll put it up again. It doesn't say that. That the, okay, it says Congress has a power. It doesn't say that Section Three doesn't stand alone. It just doesn't. George, you're just you know. You have to let me. You have to give me a second here, George. Okay, I don't. The self-executing point Elliot, is one you keep going. Ellie, you're just okay. not making any sense. Okay, George, listen. Can we? Can we? I'm sorry. <laughs> for the viewers at home who are, who are wondering, I mean, at the heart of this. Uh, and I think this is important, George, because what you were writing, what I referenced earlier, is that you formerly were skeptical of the idea that this is something yes. that could bar Trump from the ballot. But what about the, the argument here that we've heard even from people who and I should note that you are, are you know, certainly not a fan of Donald Trump's. But what about the argument that for a court to make this decision, not the voters that it's undemocratic, that they should make the decision of who's on the ballot instead of just simply the voters deciding who should be on the ballot for something of this matter. You know, that doesn't work either because the provision we're talking about, Section 14A3, was approved by Congress and by the states. And there are other provisions in the Constitution, like the requirement that the president be 35, that the president be 35 years old, that he be a natural born or she be a natural born citizen. Those too restrict the ability of people to vote for whoever they want. And the democratic way to overturn those requirements, including the requirement, which is again, as I say, is a really easy one. Don't commit an don't engage in an insurrection, don't try to overthrow the government. The way to overturn that requirement or modify it is the democratic process of proposing and, 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 and the Congress adopting and then the state legislatures approving another constitutional amendment that undoes 
Section, 14, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, at least as far as it uh, affects Trump. I don't know. Well, so I, that's, that's the democratic process that, 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 that should be involved here. If they, if they have a problem with what the Constitution says, that's the way to fix it. Well, Ellie, I'm yeah. curious. I mean, this does seem headed for the Supreme Court. The Republican Party in Colorado appealing this. Trump's team is telling us they're expected to appeal it basically any minute now. How does the Supreme Court hear an argument like what George Conway is making there? Yeah, so I think the Supreme Court's going to reverse Colorado. So a couple points here. The target of the 14th Amendment activists keeps on moving. The original theory was, as George said, self-executing, meaning secretaries of state could do this. Every secretary of state to consider this has rejected it, including Jocelyn Benson, prominent Democrat in Michigan. Brad Raffensperger, guy knows a thing or two about insurrection. He rejected it. We're waiting to hear from Maine. They're over everybody so far. In the courts... The courts have rejected this not because they found Donald Trump did not engage in insurrection. The courts have rejected this on due process grounds. And that's why Colorado today is one out of about 18 or so lawsuits that's gotten any traction. You can do the math on that. The batting average, George, is 052. And I think it's about to be knocked down to 000 when the Supreme Court reverses this. George, final word? But that may very well, that may very well be the case, but the problem is. Courts have to apply the law as it's written, not as they want it to be, and they can't avoid difficult decisions. It's like if you become a judge, you have to apply the law as written. It's like if you become an HR director at a company, you got to fire people. And that's what's going on here is courts are looking for a way out. But right now, there is no good, sensible, legal way out. Ellie Honig, George Conway. I love a robust discussion to uh, kick off our 9 p.m. hour. Thank you both for that. Uh, up ahead, we'll see if we continue this. The Iowa caucus is drawing closer. Donald Trump sharing an ominous word cloud as one of his 2024 rivals is pushing back on calls for him to drop out. We'll get reaction from former Trumper, former Trump White House National Security Advisor John Bolton. Plus, President Biden sending two of his top aides to meet with Mexico's president for urgent talks as a record number of migrants are crossing the border. A report on the ground coming up. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Less than 20 days until the Iowa caucuses. And tonight, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie responding to calls that he should narrow the GOP field by dropping out of the race. Some people say I should drop out of this race. Really? I'm the only one saying Donald Trump is a liar. He pits Americans against each other. His Christmas message to anyone who disagrees with him? Rotten hell. He caused a riot on Capitol Hill. He'll burn America to the ground to help himself. Every Republican leader says that in private. I'm the only one saying it in public. What kind of president do we want? A liar or someone who's got the guts to tell the truth? Christie is launching that new seven-figure ad buy in New Hampshire. I'm told it's his first seven-figure ad buy. And of course, there the primary falls about a week after the Iowa caucuses. Polls have consistently shown Christie and the rest of the Republican field far behind Donald Trump. But the former governor says that he believes he's the only one willing to take on the former president, a man that he once supported. 
There's obviously another Republican challenger also in New Hampshire. That is Nikki Haley. She is there tonight. You can see her here making her pitch to voters. All of this comes and we're joined now tonight by Donald Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, great to have you here tonight. I wonder what you make of Christie's response to those who have said, you know, he should drop out, consolidate the number of Trump alternatives. He's basically saying thanks, but no thanks. Well, I think it's a very powerful ad, and he makes an important point. Uh, to beat Donald Trump, you have to explain why Donald Trump is not capable of being president. Uh, and that's what he's trying to do, rather than the tactics of some of the other uh, candidates still in the race. Look, uh, this has gone back and forth. I certainly believed at one point that we, could, we should narrow the field to have one person against Trump. That obviously didn't go anywhere. It's now three weeks till the Iowa caucuses, four weeks to New Hampshire. I think the, the best way to prevail against Trump now on the Republican nomination is to diminish his vote, get it as low as possible and show that uh, he may have a plurality, but there's still a wide open possibility that somebody else could get to a majority. Look, if we had picked at the very beginning of the primary season, the candidate most likely to win, it would have been Ron DeSantis. He, he's still in it, but his chances have diminished. So I think as long as we're at this point now, I'd rather see anybody who's still in, uh, if they want to stay in, uh, see what they can come up with. This momentum can change. There's no doubt about it. So you're fine with Christie, Chris Christie staying in this race? Yeah, I, I think he's made a point uh, that, that is also important that that for Republican voters now who have to face the prospect of Trump getting the nomination, that people who don't think he's qualified, who really think he's not fit to be president, uh, should be clear about it. And that includes, for example, what Christie has done, what DeSantis has done, which say unequivocally, I will not be Trump's vice presidential nominee. Now, every candidate says, oh, well, that's hypothetical because I'm going to win the nomination. Okay, so give the candidate their right to say that, but then say, in the unlikely case you don't get the nomination, would you be Trump's vice president? I'm sure Vivek Ramaswamy would say in a heartbeat, I'd like to know what the other candidates who haven't given their real opinion on the issue think. And I think Republican voters should hear it. That seems to very be a very clear message to about Nikki Haley. I mean, she is someone who Chris Christie last week told a voter in New Hampshire, you know, he would maybe consider supporting her if she would make it clear where she stood uh, on Trump. And he said that uh, essentially because she wouldn't answer questions like whether or not she'd accept a vice presidential role that, that he couldn't at this moment. I mean, what do you make of her strategy in, in kind of talking about Trump when it comes to the deficit and other issues, but not taking him on directly uh, on other fronts, on the most obvious fronts, his legal fronts, well, his, his, all, the, all of those issues? Well, I think it's a strategy designed to get past the Republican nomination to get to the general election. But, but you know, it also reminds me of what a Mitt Romney campaign official said during the 2012 uh, election contest. Not Romney, who I don't think believed what his campaign official said. But this guy said, you know, after the primary, it's like an etch-a-sketch. You can shake the thing up and then start all over again. And And I think that's a mistake. I think people want consistency. They want a profile and courage. They want a candidate who says one thing to Republican voters and basically says the same thing to general election voters. That is a candidate uh, of principle. And I think uh, faced with Donald Trump, a man who has no principles, uh, it would be a plus for a candidate to be very clear about where they stand. Do you plan to endorse the 2024 race in the GOP primary? Well, I haven't so 
Yeah, I, I haven't so far, and uh, I'm not. I'm not sure that I will at this point. Uh, candidates that I would have preferred decided not to run, so it sort of left me at the starting gate. Well, and you yourself had, had toyed with the idea of a run. I wonder what you made of. I was an, not 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 including me. Okay, I wonder what you made of a. a, a have you ruled that out, by the way, sir? I have. I haven't. But uh, look at the calendar. Yeah, it is getting quite close. I do want to get your reaction to an image that Trump reposted. It was from this Daily Mail survey. They asked a thousand likely voters what they thought. One word that came to mind when they thought of a potential second uh, Trump term. Some of the words were power, revenge. But you can see clearly here dictatorship and dictator are quite large on that image. Why do you think Trump shared that? I think because he uh, believes that it will drive people crazy who, who don't like him. This is a way to show to the base that uh, the people who hate him are the people the base hates as well. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it is revelatory of his character. He cares about himself getting revenge, not, not for wrongs done to his supporters, but wrongs done to Donald Trump. And he cares about the power of the presidency. Uh, in, in his mind, I think that's what it's all about. This has nothing to do with political philosophy uh, or policies in Washington. As usual, it's all about Donald Trump. Former National Security Advisor, Ambassador John Bolton, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. I want to dig in on the 2024 race, the strategies with CNN political commentator Kate Bedingfield, who is the former White House communications director for President Biden. Also here tonight, Republican strategist and pollster Kristen Soltis Anderson. Kristen, let me start with you because you had this really interesting piece in the New York Times where you were co comparing Trump, how he ran in 2016 as this chaos candidate with how he's running now. And you said that for 2024, people should not, quote, assume that most voters will consider a second Trump term to be the riskier bet. I mean, given the fact that, you know, he's making jokes about being a dictator, he's laying out what that second term could look like. Why not? Why do you make that argument? I know it seems a little bit crazy if you are somebody who does not say, think of Donald Trump as the face you'd put next to the word stability and order in the dictionary. And yet all of the polling data that I have seen over the last couple of months has suggested that for voters, while they may have thought of Donald Trump as Mr. Chaos in 2016 when it worked for him, as well as 2020 when it did not work for him, that nowadays they've been looking at the last three years and they've been saying, gosh, I voted for Biden because I thought he was going to put things back to normal. It doesn't feel like things have gotten back to normal. And so whatever advantage Biden held over Trump on that metric has really started to go away in a lot of the polling that I've seen. Kate, what do you make of that? You worked for President Biden, uh, obviously, very closely. You were in his circle of advisors that he trusted. Well, I think some of that is a function of people really haven't seen or thought about Donald Trump. And that, that feels like a strange thing to say for those of us who talk about him all the time and probably a lot of the CNN audience who thinks about him more than the average voter does. For most voters, they really aren't thinking about politics day in and day out. They aren't, certainly aren't thinking about Donald Trump. And so I think the challenge for the Biden campaign, the task for them in this coming year, uh, is to really make this contest about what Donald Trump has said he will do. I thought actually John Bolton said it very, very well. Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. He doesn't actually care about, uh, about you or your family. And he's not interested in doing anything that's actually gonna help you or your family. And so for the Biden campaign, what they've gotta do is define the contours of this race make very clear 
what a second term of the Trump presidency would mean, because Trump, of course, is an incumbent this time around, too. Right. That's another key difference between the kind of race he ran in 2016 and the race he's got to run this time. Uh, you know, there are a lot of promises he made he didn't keep. Uh, and then, of course, there was a lot of chaos uh, and a lot of damage uh, that he did that sort of, you know, swing voters as dwindling as they are, um, are comfortable with. And the more they're reminded of that, the more they see the the clear choice between the two, I think Biden will benefit over time. But that, to me, that's what this campaign is going to be about. And that's the success uh, the Biden campaign is going to be. It's going to be make or break whether they can do that. Well, and, and this is, it's important to note, Trump is not the Republican nominee yet. We don't know what the voters are going to decide. We wait to see what they decide. We look at the polling, but we wait to see what they decide when the Iowa caucuses happen, the New Hampshire primary. And Kristen, on that front, Nikki Haley is in New Hampshire tonight making her case to voters. She's been doing this repeatedly. She was asked tonight, just a few moments ago, by, by a voter about what was the cause of the Civil War. This is how she responded. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? I'm sorry? I'm not ready to president. <laughs> I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government. In 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? Um, uh, you've answered my question. Thank you. Next question. Now, it's not your average town hall question, but she, she did seem surprised by it. And the voter, as you could hear there, called her out for not mentioning slavery. What do you make uh, of that answer? Yeah, if I were her, that would have been pretty easy to just say that and move on. But it's also, I think, pretty clear that that voter was kind of trying to catch her and saying something that would potentially make her less appealing to those independent voters in New Hampshire that she's going to rely on so heavily. So this was an, an easy question to answer. I wish she had answered it using the easy word, say slavery. There's a disagreement in our country about it. Um, but ultimately, I don't think it's actually going to hurt her standing one way or another with Republican primary voters at this point. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Kate Bedingfield, thank you both for joining tonight. Thank you. Up next, we'll get an update in Israel as new videos are circulating of a group of Palestinians being detained by the IDF, stripped down to their underwear, and what we see, it appears to be at least two children are among them. That's next. There are new videos tonight that show dozens of Palestinian men and at least two children, from our account, detained and stripped of their clothing by Israeli forces inside a stadium in Gaza City. A heads up that what you're about to see is disturbing, but obviously it's important. That's why we're showing it to you. You can see here in this video, the men, there are two children, they're surrounded by the IDF, walking in only their underwear with their hands up. In the past, the IDF has said that it has stripped detainees to ensure that they're not carrying explosives. But tonight, they've not responded to CNN's request for comment on what you're seeing here and the children that are involved. In other clips, the men are sitting on the floor with their hands tied behind their backs. Some of them are blindfolded. 
while other images show women and children among the detained. An Israeli flag seen hanging on a soccer goal in the background. I should note CNN is unable to verify when this video was taken. We have geolocated it to that stadium, though, in Gaza City for its accuracy. Joining me here tonight, Danny Dunone, a member of the Israeli parliament and a former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. So, Ambassador, thank you for, for being here. What is Israel's explanation for why these two children were detained and stripped to their underwear? Uh, good night, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. I'm not familiar with, with the video you just described, but I can tell you that when we detain people, it's only when we know that they are involved in the terrorist activities. And unfortunately, we saw in Gaza many cases of, of teenagers, uh, women, that are actually collaborating with Hamas, uh, and that is why we take precautions when we arrest them. Uh, if we found out that they are not involved, we'll release them immediately. But we have, we have arrested uh, hundreds of people who collaborated with Hamas, uh, and many times they, they were able to attack our troops. So it's disguising when you see somebody who, who seems innocent, but right uh, after he, he passes by the troops, uh, he will bomb him himself. We had one issue of a suicide bomber. Uh, that's why we take those precautions. Well, you said when we know. I mean, these are detainees. Uh, they're suspected, but they're not all confirmed, right? Well, I, I, as I told you, I don't know to which video you refer to, but yes, we do arrest people who collaborate with Hamas. But let me remind you that we have 129 hostages that uh, were kidnapped from their homes. Nobody knows where they are, including women that we know that are being tortured every day. So with all due respect to those videos, even if those people will get arrested, they will be arrested in Israel, they will go to court, they, they will see a lawyer, uh, what about our hostages? Even the Red Cross haven't visited them for almost three months. So I'm not well, disturbed I, by those videos. I want to talk about the hostages because obviously that's incredibly important. But these are children. I mean, is that typical IDF practice to detain even children and strip them to their underwear? Because we see at least two children in, the, in these videos. Well, uh, we have no intention to arrest uh, innocent children. But sometimes Hamas will use those children to transfer explosives, uh, to uh, target uh, the IDF troops in Gaza. So when we have no choice, yes, uh, we will detain uh, minors and we will treat them properly. Uh, we are not eager to do it, but we know that Hamas will use women and children in order to attack us. We've asked the IDF for comment on this. I should note they've not gotten back to us. We're, we're waiting for them to get back to us. But Ambassador, we're also hearing that Secretary of State Blinken is expected to return to Israel next week to talk about the next steps in this war. Is that what you've heard? And what do you expect those talks to look like? I mean, what are the next steps that, that Israel is taking here? So we welcome the visit of the secretary again in Israel. We know that the U.S. is trying to start a dialogue about the day after what will happen in Gaza after we win the war against Hamas. For us, I can frankly tell you that we are still focused on today, not about the day after. We still have the hostages. We still need to eradicate Hamas. We are moving forward. You know, Sinwar and the leadership of Hamas, I am sure that they can hear the tanks above them. So we are operating in order to capture the leadership of Hamas. But we are willing to talk about the day after, which will, for us, it's very simple. We need to demilitarize Gaza. And we need to have a process of denazification of the people of Gaza. That's the challenge. The same way the U.S. and the Allies did 
in Nazi Germany or in Japan. That's something we are looking to do, including partners for the international community, to do in Gaza, to build a new future for the people in Gaza, not to reconstruct a terror state all over again. Well, I mean, yeah, there's major disagreements between a lot of the international community in Israel over what this looks like and the U.S. and Israel. So we'll wait to see what comes of, of those talks. But you mentioned the hostage earlier. And of course, there are still 129 that are being held, including, we're told, the bodies of 22 hostages who have been killed. One of them is Noah Argamani. Her mom has terminal cancer, and she's written a letter in recent days asking President Biden to see her daughter, asking for his help because she wants to see her daughter one last time before she dies. Is there any hope? For Noah's mom, for the other parents of these hostages tonight, has there been any progress in restarting a hostage agreement with Hamas? Well, as you mentioned, Caitlin, Noah's story is one of the 129 stories. And I think everybody should watch the, the brutal video when she was uh, captured and brutally uh, brought uh, into Gaza on a motorcycle, uh, which we are trying. We are willing to negotiate. Uh, and also the negotiators, both Egypt and Qatar, are trying to move forward. Unfortunately, uh, we feel that Hamas, maybe they are mistakenly thinking that we are about to, to stop the military operation before we release the hostages. That is not the case. I hope that we will renew the talks. We are willing to pay a price in order to bring back uh, Noah and the rest of the hostages. But no progress that you can update us on right now? Unfortunately not. Ambassador Danny Dunome, thank you for joining us from Israel tonight. Thank you. Meanwhile, here in the United States, with the migrant crisis getting worse, President Biden has sent two of his top aides to Mexico today. We're live near the southern border for a report right after a quick break. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Two of President Biden's top aides in Mexico City tonight to hold high-level talks about how to stop or at least curb the surge of migrants that is creating a chaotic situation at the southern border. Secretary of State Antony Blinken just left a short time ago. He was there with Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They wrapped up an hours-long meeting with Mexico's president. And just now, a top Mexican official described the meetings as, quote, very good. We're still waiting for more of a readout from what was actually discussed whether or not they came to any agreement. But this comes as the southern border and officials there are scrambling to respond to what is an unprecedented level of illegal crossings in recent days. CNN's Rosa Flores has been at the southern border covering this story. Rosa, I think the big question now that we are hearing from at least one Mexican official saying that it was a very good meeting is whether or not anything changes, whether or not any agreement was made while these officials were in the room trying to hammer out what they believe could, could fix or at least help this situation. 
Caitlin, you're exactly right. That is the big question. What agreements were made? And in that gaggle that Mexico's top diplomat, Alicia Barcena, gave to Spanish-speaking media and obtained by CNN, um, it was a short gaggle, but the diplomat did mention that this was a very good meeting. She said and hinted at this agreement that would be later announced um, in a joint statement by both countries. So we'll see what that'll be. She also mentioned that some of the uh, discussion points were about the root causes of migration, uh, things like violence and also uh, family separation in, and, and reunification. Why some migrants decide to make the trek and come to the United States is to reunify uh, with their families. And she also mentioned the economic impact of the port of entry closures. Now, these closures uh, were made by the United States to respond to this latest surge. Uh, there are multiple ports of entry, including one here in Eagle Pass that is closed. Well, Barcena mentioned that that was one of the top priorities for Mexico, because as you know, uh, Mexico is the United States' top trading partner. So both countries have a lot to lose economically uh, if these ports of entry continue to be closed. So that was one of the things that she mentioned. As for what the United States was hoping uh, for in these talks, uh, Caitlin, as we've talked about before, um, the United States was expected to ask Mexico to move migrants south, to control the railways, which are used by migrants to uh, uh, move north towards the U.S. southern border, and also to provide incentives for migrants to stay in Mexico. And bottom line, whatever Mexico does or doesn't do, Caitlin, it will impact how many migrants end up on the U.S. southern border. Caitlin. Yeah, it's a hugely consequential meeting. We'll wait to see what it is that, that has come from it. Rosa Flores, great reporting all day. Thank you for that. And here tonight is also Texas State Representative Eddie Morales, is a Democrat who has criticized the Biden administration's response to the border crisis. And Representative, thank you so much for being here tonight. You just heard Rosa say there that they do expect a, a joint statement to come out with, with what was agreed to today. What are you hoping will be included in that? We've got to stop the 100% commercial inspections that are taking place. That is a Governor Abbott initiative in order to um, send the message to Coahuila and to the rest of Mexico that their migrant surge and their help with Texas and the United States is not doing enough. I think we've now seen that Mexico has responded. Our numbers in Eagle Pass has drastically reduced. And I think we can end those 100% commercial inspections on commercial trucks because we're going what used to be a 30 minute drive from Piedras Negras into Eagle Pass is now taking anywhere from five to 10 hours for these commercial vehicles to cross. And it does nothing to stop the migrant search because the, the, the migrants are not coming through the 18 wheelers. They're crossing through the river. Um, so that they can get processed and then they can get their paperwork. Yeah, you so just see, this is this is wrong. And, excuse me, but you just kind of see to what you're pointing to there, just the larger effects of this and how it is not just a simple black and white issue where it's affecting one thing. It's affecting a lot of commercial interest as well, which Rosa w was pointing out there. But is the bigger issue, which obviously I think anyone in Washington would agree that the southern border is a problem. When it comes to the fact that you see two top aides there uh, of President Biden's, does him dispatching them to go and to sit down with the Mexican president to talk about this signal to you that he does understand what an issue this is? It does, and it's a long time coming. I appreciate what Biden and his administration have done. And 
making sure that this meeting would take place. I think it sends the right message to the um, folks uh, that live this on a daily basis, to the small business um, folks that are here in Texas, and to the business community. We have, you know, the largest trading partner right across from us. They are wasting and spending billions of dollars with these rail cl uh, closures with these 100% commercial inspections. So I really truly hope that we can get immigration reform from this, whether it's added to the Ukraine funding bill, whether it's added to any other sort of funding bill, but we need to have action. I think not only the United States, but everyone in Texas is expecting our leaders up in DC and in Austin to be working for the people. And I think that we have missed on that and we need to return to that and our, uh, Texas constituents, but everyone in the country is expecting our leaders to do better and to fix this issue. And it's a long time coming. Congress has felt to take action in over 30 years. We should be putting and pointing the finger in the right place, and it should be Congress that needs to take action. And I hope that with this initiative and President Biden doing this and sending the people down there to meet with Lopez Obrador, that we can get um, something significant to come out of this. And and not hurt our economy the way we're doing. You know, Union Pacific alone was losing $200 million daily when the rail closure took place. Just imagine what that would do, not only um, uh, in Eagle Pass, but regionally and throughout the domino effect that it has to the rest of the country. A lot of important issues to be discussed here. Representative Eddie Morales, thank you for, for joining to talk about such a crucial issue, not just for you, but for your voters as well, and of course, for officials on both sides of the border. Thank you, Ms. Kayla. Also tonight, there's a critical moment for the booming artificial intelligence world. This is the first of its kind lawsuit that we are seeing here, essentially accusing the industry of stealing information. The implications that this new lawsuit has, potentially for everyone, that's ahead. Tonight, there's a new legal fight that is playing out, which could have far-reaching implications for the future of news. The New York Times is suing OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. The lawsuit is really the first of its kind by a major media company, but it has implications for everyone because it sets the stage for what could be some groundbreaking legal fights between big tech and news organizations over their artificial intelligence products. Here tonight, joining me on this lawsuit is Axios senior media reporter and CNN media analyst, Sarah Fisher, Sarah, uh, the New York Times says that this lawsuit is coming after there were months of these behind the scenes negotiations. What drove them to file this lawsuit? Why now? Well, I think that the OpenAI and Microsoft folks probably thought that they could sort of pay the New York Times off, you know, strike a deal for a few years where they're paying them several million dollars. And I think what the New York Times is trying to do with this complaint is say, that is just not good enough. We think, and they note this in the complaint, that there are billions of dollars worth of damages, not just a few million that they could reap from their IP, their creative uh, intellectual property being leveraged to train the algorithms that are used by OpenAI and Microsoft. And what's the argument from tech companies? I mean, do they essentially believe that that this content that they're using to build these artificial intelligence products is essentially fair game to do so? That's exactly right. So we have a current copyright law, Caitlin, but it only protects works that are created by humans. And so the advent of artificial intelligence has forced us to reckon with how do we adapt copyright law for the modern era. Now, they argue it's within something called fair use to be able to leverage 
works that are made public. And one of the things that the New York Times notes in its complaint is that they're not just scraping its free content, but they're also scraping content behind its paywall, which I think will help the New York Times. But ultimately, this is a type of battle that's going to play out in courts. Don't expect Congress to pass laws. It's these types of lawsuits that will determine whether or not news companies are paid long term for their content being used. And by the way, that has a huge implication for the future of the industry, which is already struggling amid a weak ad market. And I think that's an important thing here, because when I was initially reading about this lawsuit this morning, I mean, obviously, this matters to people like you and me. We work in the news business. It's a, it's a question for people. But you know, there's not a ton of precedent here, maybe no precedent here. And so what are the implications that this could have, not only for news, but, but also for the future of artificial intelligence and what these products are going to look like? Because they're happening, you know, whether people like it or not or embrace it or not. But, but what does a lawsuit like this mean potentially for the future of that? A few things. One, they need this content and not just news content, Caitlin. They need content from writers, from artists, from book publishers to be able to form, inform and train their algorithms. And so if they put these types of companies out of business because they're not compensating them, then what are they going to train their algorithms on? So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that if this court decides that they do have to pay out billions of dollars worth of damages, I don't know that the business models that OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google are using to create their artificial intelligence models are going to be viable. And so this huge growth that you've seen over the past few months might come to a screeching halt if some of these court cases determine that they have to pay out billions to get the content to train their algorithms. So what are you hearing from from your sources? I mean, it's pretty clear what people in the news world, how, how they view this, but what a what do people like Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, what do these other tech officials or tech people say about this and, and their concerns about a lawsuit like this and whether or not there's going to be more lawsuits like this? Well, I can tell you they're blindsided because they have been talking to The New York Times for a long time. And this is, if you talk to any legal expert, Caitlin, an unprecedented complaint that is going to be a landmark case. So I think they were caught off guard. But I think their concern is whether or not they can continue, especially if you're open AI, to put forth this image of being nonprofit, being good for society. When you have complaints like The New York Times alleging, no, this is actually a for-profit entity that's to take advantage of our content for their own benefit and use. That's an existential crisis for them. It's going to be such a fascinating thing to, to keep an eye on. Sarah Fisher, we'll continue to check in with you as we watch this. Thank you. Thank you. Before we go tonight, it seems the trail is not enough for James Bond actor Pierce Brosnan. The Englishman known for his tenure as Agent 007 was cited yesterday in Wyoming after allegedly walking in the thermal areas of Yellowstone National Park. Obviously, that's a no-go. Regulations prohibit walking around those designated trails or boardwalks. Off, off of those, I should note, the Park Service says that water in and around the hot springs can cause severe or even fatal burns. No kind of MI6 training, of course, could even help with that. I should note Pierce Brosnan has been ordered to appear at the Yellowstone Justice Center on January 23rd. In 2021, a park goer faced similar charges, was, who was facing similar charges was sentenced to seven days in jail. We have reached out to the actor's representatives for comment and we'll let you know if we hear more. Thank you so much for joining us on this busy news night tonight. Say the news night with Abby Phillip starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.